This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. This week, we meet Ecologic Studio, take a dip at a Danish Bell Hotel, and visit a bootmaker's workshop in Paris. All that and more coming up on Monocle on Design. We begin today's show at the Building Centre in London, where the Otrevin Air Lab is a current resident. Devised by Ecologic Studio, the Biodesign Workshop and Living Showroom exhibits the development of biodegradable polymers. This show's producer, Maylee Evans, went along and sent us this report. I'm at the Platform Gallery in the Building Centre, which is currently a working laboratory. It's inside the lightweight timber structure that I meet the co-founders of Ecologic Studio. We hear from Marco Poletto first. Essentially, the Air Lab is a biofactory in the public realm, um, which demonstrates how we can uh, embody or embed uh, circular economies in the public realm. And uh, the circularity here um, essentially uh, is closing the loop between the purification of the air that we breathe and the production of biodegradable and sustainable products for uh, self-care. We are trying to demonstrate how we can take care of ourselves while taking care of the planet that we inhabit. Around one side of the air lab, metre-high lab-grade glass vessels are filled with 10 litres of living photosynthetic microalgae, which you can definitely hear bubbling away. Ecologic Studios' other co-founder, Claudio Pasquero, explains what's going on inside these giant tubes. So here we have um, a set of um, photobioreactors. These are home or architectural photobioreactors that cultivate multiple species of microalgae. Microalgae are present in thousands of species, and in this case we have uh, cyanidium, this uh, blue-green alga, uh, porphyridium, the red one, spirulina and chlorella. Spirulina and chlorella could be used also as a food supplement and are present in many of the green drinks that we can consume and um, while the other are used mainly for biopolymer. The glass vessels are made of borosilicate glass and are essentially an artificial habitat designed to optimise growth for these microalgae. These organisms on show are already present in our urban environment, in waterways, canals, ponds or rivers. Here in the Air Lab, however, the team are looking to isolate specific strengths present in these microalgae, which may have useful properties when it comes to material development. This growing process has an additional benefit. As well as growing microalgae or cyanobacteria, as it's sometimes called, the process also helps purify polluted air too. In the example of the cyanidium, you see that there are bubbles of air that are introduced from the bottom. Uh, this air comes from the city, from the urban realm, so it is uh, to a certain extent polluted, we should say, or contaminated with substances like NOxes or uh, carbon dioxide, fine particulate matters. All these elements that are suspended in the air are actually uh, harmful for our breathing, but they are nutrients for the cyanobacteria. Right? So by Pushing them through the, the reactors, the bubble naturally raise up uh, through the liquid medium, exchange with the cells of the, of the algae that are uh, obviously growing in the, in the liquid medium. And so when that exchange happens, the photosynthesis takes place, as you may remember, 
from your biology classes, and uh, it's <laughs> and so this is a process where carbon dioxide is transformed into oxygen, which is then released uh, back in the air from the top of the reactor, and. Um, the byproduct of the process is also biomass produced. And you can visually see it by looking at the color. You see these reactors at the moment are quite dark. And that means that they are pretty much ready to be harvested. We separate the biomass from the water next using a filter. Doing so leaves a thick emerald coloured paste ready for the drying process. We are um, drying the harvested microalgae. You can see here some of the from the drying process, some of the elements that remains. And then we are using it to produce a sample of biodegradable material, substitute of plastic. This is a mix with other components that are all bio-based and come from ketosan, come from the crustaceous animals. So we went around harvesting from a restaurant, shellfish. Agar is also marine alga. Is, a, is from marine alga. Vinegar, glycerin, they are well-known biosubstances. And this is a part of the process is really about taking the biomass, mixing it with this other ingredient, and uh, through a slow cooking process, essentially you kind of simmer it, it becomes like a gooey substance, which you then pour into these uh, Petri containers and uh, create some of these material samples. Depending on the alchemy of the mixture created in the cooking process, the properties of these samples can vary greatly. Some samples have a rubbery texture, whilst others are akin to leather. There were basically two main uh, ambitions we had. One is to, to see how much percentage of algae we could use in the mix to essentially see how much of this closed loop we could, uh, we could implement. And basically the darkest samples here, they contain up to 50% of the algae. Half of the material content in it comes directly from the air purification process. The other aspects was to achieve uh, properties that would be suitable for converting into a 3D printing material. Because the second part of the process is dedicated to 3D printing as a technology that we wanted to interface with the biological purification process in order to create useful products. 3D printing is key to the AirLab. The printer is small, portable and allows the final stage to take place in the same space as the growing and drying processes. Moreover, it makes optimal use of the material using only what's necessary. At the AirLab, the Ecologic Studio team have been developing and testing a range of thicknesses, or layering, in this printing process. The thickness and the printing process has a great influence. If you look at this example, for it's, it's, it's just one single layer, it's basically 0.2 of a millimeter thick, and it's still pretty strong. It can hold liquids or other objects, but it is so thin that once uh, composted, in two or three weeks will disappear. Thicker uh, examples have two or three layers, in some cases double wall that we have tested. So all of a sudden this is like extremely strong, it's almost unbreakable and it can last for a very long time, but it will still biodegrade if it's composted. Through 3D printing, we can essentially articulate the material properties. So we are no longer bound to 
a single material or a single range of applications, but we can, from the same process, materialize uh, multiple outputs. The Air Lab isn't your typical exhibition, but more a demonstration that it is possible to create spaces in public where research, material production and consumption are integrated and overlap. No, I think this is, a, for us, part of a bigger vision of what a, a future BioCity could look like. For us, it's really about uh, kind of embedding new processes of remetabolization of waste into useful product and, and, and material and, and, and try to embed these processes into the public realm, domestic realm, uh, and in a way that, uh, that really enables everyone to, to contribute. So far, the public response to the living showroom have been positive, which shouldn't be a surprise. As Marco tells me, many visitors arrive with a certain curiosity towards finding new solutions or materials for the built environment. People are, uh, you know, quite, uh, you know, I say surprised that it's actually possible to bring together a process that sounds quite complicated maybe to many or, you know, sounds very scientific and so you would not expect to be able to to put it together into, into a space like this, but... It is possible with, with uh, you know, a little bit of care and, and, and especially a bit of design. All of these uh, aspects that sound quite abstract when you talk about them and you actually see them live, they start to make a lot of sense. And, and I think that's really ultimately for us the role of the designer or design innovator. It's, it's you know, to bring processes that to most people sound very complicated, difficult, out of reach and, you know... Um, craft them into a space that it's inviting and that you know people can come and you know touch with hand and then all of a sudden they can imagine their own way of doing these things and can begin to contribute to the process and that's where the sort of collective intelligence if you want of a process like this can um, can take place surrounding the air lab are examples of ecologic studios projects Playgrounds have integrated bioreactors and algae that contrast sharply against play equipment. Videos document previous installations built at the scale for adults to interact with. I ask the duo about ideas of play, beauty, pleasure, and why they seem to reoccur in their practice's work. Pleasure, both uh, experiential and visual one, is a key aspect in the work we do and also in the way we consider design can have an agency in climate change. The planet changes continuously. The question is not to stop change, but to have a change that is less disrupted and more integrated. For us, it's really important that we understand and take care also through pressure of the planet. That's why there is this aspect of playfulness that, of course, starts from the younger age, but continues also in adulthood through different pleasure that, as I said, can be also visual one or daily interactions. We like to say that Uh, Beauty is a true measure of ecological intelligence. If you look at the natural world, uh, what we perceive as beautiful is often a manifestation of an underlying order and ability to deal with the surrounding world effectively and efficiently. You know, what we're trying to do with our work is uh, to inspire a similar uh, transition, you know, in society and in our technology And we don't think that technology alone can solve issues that we are facing today. I think it will be necessary for technology to undergo a similar transformation 
We think that design and beauty are values that are fundamental to create this emotional connection to processes that we interact with and therefore also to the planet that surrounds us. And without this emotional connection, there won't be any fundamental transformation. The Ochvina Lab is on show at the Building Centre until the 17th of September 2022. For Monocle in London, I'm Maylie Evans. With thermometers soaring in Europe, we look for ways to keep cool. Denmark's home to the famous Bell Hotel. Also known as a swimming hotel, there's something of an institution in the Nordics and an architectural and cultural pastime that's well worth preserving. Monocle's Gabriele Della Santi visited one in the north of the country and sent us this report. The concept of a Danish bar hotel first emerged in the late 1800s. The word roughly translates as swimming hotel, and today these seaside retreats are scattered all across the country's coast. The concept, when it first appeared, was quite straightforward. Picture a large wooden structure, often painted white or red, fitted with the bare essentials, rigorously located by the water, and surrounded by nothing but sandy dunes and lush fields. These were places where Copenhagen's affluent class would spend their summers, often even prescribed by their doctor. Here they would find delight away from the bustling city and enjoy the simplicity of the country's natural landscape. The concept has however evolved in time, and many of these hotels have transformed into holiday beach resorts, often fitted with pools and spas and with little left of the original creations. However, there is one Bell Hotel that is stubbornly keeping the tradition alive. I'm at Svinklo Bell Hotel today, in the north of Jutland, paying a visit to this popular spot. The hotel is housed in Denmark's longest timber structure, located on the North Sea and surrounded by hilly white sand dunes. It's a two-story building, painted in light grey, with large windows spread across its facade. I meet the owners, Louise and Kenneth Toft Hansen, who have been running the place since 2015. This is the green room, and this is actually one of the places that have changed uh, since the rebuild, because before... Louise takes me on a tour through the building's colour-coded rooms, painted in pale blue, yellow and pink, and furnished with a range of bespoke furniture. These include the Vester chair, crafted in light, oiled oak, and designed by Danish brand Skagerrak, and named after Louise's son. The place is defined by a lively and bustling atmosphere. The guests are busy enjoying a coffee before lunch, where locally sourced fish and freshly baked bread are served alongside a selection of daily desserts. Louise describes the convivial space as one big summer house, the popular cabins where Danes flock to during the sunnier season. The only difference between the two? Here, both food and maintenance are well taken care of. In all the hotels, in, in the restaurant, in the living rooms, we have this concept of less is more. We only want to have what is necessary. In the bedrooms, there are no minibars, there are no TV. There's you know, two chairs and a small table. And that's actually it. Lovely pictures on the walls and maybe a, a little carpet. Everything is painted grey. It's wooden floors. It's 
wooden walls, wooden ceilings. It's like being in a summer house. It was a couple of months after Louise and her husband took over the ownership of the hotel that the structure burned to the ground. The two took the opportunity as a commitment to bringing back and preserving the very essence of the Bal Hotel. When we uh, rebuilt the place, a lot of people were like, okay, now you obviously have to uh, change things because now you can. And we were like, well, no. <laughs> we really want to preserve the, the essence and the core value of being just a place where less is more and where you use nature and the ocean and off the grid get away from the busy every day. We want to keep things as they were uh, originally but we of course also want to make the place our own and we also want to do some changes but we've kept the original essence and the value of a Bell Hotel being a place where you just spend time breathing, bathing in the sea and have a conversation. I meet Louise's husband, Kenneth, in the afternoon, on his short break in between meals. He's the second Dane to ever win the Bocuse d'Or, a prestigious competition for chefs held in France. And for him, a good seasonal food offering based exclusively on local ingredients is key in preserving the hotel's spirits. It can sound really old-fashioned, but it's just another way of thinking that how can a place be? I think we are the only hotel, definitely in Denmark, that changes the menu every day for people to have a feeling for eating here every day. We serve them a nice meal every night and getting to know them. We are like 200 meters from the Danish uh, sea and, and of course what we can get from the sea is dictating the menu. We are extremely seasonal. In the spring we go with asparagus, Norwegian lobster, Danish local oysters with asparagus or fermented rhubarb. And as we go along, as the season change, as we're so close to the fish auction, four o'clock in the morning and say, okay guys, this would be the fish of the day. And then we have to write down the menu in the morning and then we, yeah, make the menu happen. After getting a taste of a fresh oyster picked in a nearby fjord, Louise tells me how much of her and Kenneth's work goes to nurturing the hotel's community. With families returning year after year for generations, it's ultimately the guests who ensure the hotel remains a place worth spending summers in. For Kenneth and I, it's important to uh, to run this place on a personal level. Our office is right in the entrance. There we can see everyone coming, everyone going. We can, you know, hear what's going on in the in the hotel, and uh, we want to be there and we want to talk to our guests. So we have quite a personal relationship to a lot of our guests because the same guests come year after year. Some have come in three generations. Swinklu is a part of their lives, a mutual um, summer house. And that's also very exceptional about this place, that it's not just a building. There's so much history in the walls and, and so many personal relationships uh, that has started here and evolved here. With families returning year after year for generations, 
It's ultimately the guests who ensure the hotel remains a place worth spending summers in. For Monocle on the North Jutland coast, I'm Gabriel de Lisanti. Watch out for Monocle Films. Since launch, Monocle's eagle-eyed filmmakers and journalists have cut and framed visually vivid dispatches and documentaries from all corners of the globe, from one-on-one interviews to industry reports and journeys where you won't believe your eyes. With hundreds of films available now and for free at monocle.com film, there's never been more to see. Let's roll. We continue now with our next instalment of our summer series, and this time we stop off in Canada. Here, Monocle's Thomas Lewis has been thinking about a generation of motels in Ontario that offer more than just somewhere for passing travellers to rest their weary heads. There's a quiet that descends upon Toronto each and every summer. The city feels like it's emptied out and summer holidays unfold elsewhere in the countryside, often in the lake-pocked landscapes that are only a few hours' drive away. And along those routes, whichever direction you decide to take, you'll likely encounter a familiar architectural silhouette dotted along the way, that of the Highway Motel. But during the past few years, there's been a shift away from the Highway Motel as a solely utilitarian place, somewhere to stop off during a longer journey or as a base for activities like fishing and hunting to destinations in their own right. From the Drake Motor Inn in the village of Wellington and the Dune Motel, a former fisherman's lodge in the town of Picton, both in Prince Edward County, to Penny's Motel in the village of Thornbury, which is famous for its apple cidery and its hanger-sized antiques market, to the latest addition to Southern Ontario's revamped motel offering, Somewhere In, an hour or so away from Ottawa, near the village of Calabogie. Southern Ontario's motels, known for their unfussy utility, now in many cases offer another reason this summer to hit the road again and to stay a little longer, rather than just passing through. For Monocle, I'm Thomas Lewis. In Paris's 12th arrondissement at the Viaduc des Arts, you'll find bootmaker Philippe Atienza, a former artisan at heritage brand John Lobb, as well as Massaro, the gifted craftsman now produces custom shoes for clients at his atelier housed in a former railway arch. We caught up with the bottier to discuss his process and the changes he has witnessed at Via Duc des Arts over the years. We are uh, seated in the area where I receive clients for taking measurement where my shoe display are. I am Philippe Atienza, a famous bootmaker. <laughs> uh, sorry, I'm joking. Uh, a bootmaker established in Paris in 2016, and then I was uh, working before to be established on my own name. Uh, I was working for John Love for 21 years and for Massaro for 10 years. And then I decided to establish under my name in Paris. 
I was living uh, near this uh, viaduct, and uh, when I was working at John Lobb, my workshop was in the opposite side of the Viaduc des Arts. So every day I was walking along the Viaduc des Arts. And uh, from this time I, I always said I will be here. The mayor of uh, Paris, Jacques Chirac, he was really concerned because in the 12th arrondissement, it was uh, the street for the people who make furniture. The craftsmen from these areas start to leave this area of Paris because it became expensive. So the mayor of Paris decided to buy the arch from the rail company to keep the craft in the city. And uh, the mayor of the city said, maybe we, we can make more type of craft in this art. We keep the idea of the arch, but now it's more open to some other craft. If you decide yourself to, to take a place in Paris, the price of the square meter is very expensive. The big company uh, can buy uh, a nice shop near the Champs-Élysées uh, with a very expensive rent. I, I am not a big company, but I wanted my craft to have a nice area. The, the challenge was uh, to have the client who came in the 12th arrondissement in Paris near the Gare de Lyon, near Bastille, uh, to take an appointment to place an order of custom-made shoes. At the beginning, it was a challenge, right? Be because it's not near the Champs-Élysées, uh, but the client accepts the idea to come here. Here, it is uh, support by the city. So you have a very nice place. You, you can have 200 square meters for the same price as a 50 square meter in some other area. And also the place is just a, a piece of art. You have the craft with a nice window, a lot of light. So I am here since um, seven years already. I am still more confident uh, to choose this area to create my workshop and I'm happy to be here uh, a bit more every year. I was working at John Love for 21 years and uh, then I worked with Massaro under the control of a Chanel company for 10 years before to create my workshop. Now I have my signature, and, uh, but I keep in my mind all my uh, uh, work that I, I did before. John Massaro uh, gave me uh, a high inspiration of, 
of my work, of my style. Before I wanted to, I have to describe my style. But uh, when I start this workshop, I understood that uh, I don't have to describe my style. I just uh, have to make the, the shoes that the customer like to have. First, I listen the client. And second, I try to be sure that I understand well what the client wants. And then after, I produce the shoes. And I do not push for one style or another style. I just need to understand what the client wants. I have my style, I have my test, but I have to respect the test of the client first. The bootmaker Philippe Atienza there. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. Or, if you prefer print, then pick up a copy of Monocle magazine on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced by May Lee Evans. She edited the show with assistance from Adam Heaton. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening.